Well, good morning. My name is Michael Fay, and I know a lot of you, and some of you I don't know, and that's a good thing. Uh, but I am so privileged to be here. I am the lead teaching pastor at Arcadia City Church. And um, this week, Rick Gluse and the Board of Servant Leaders asked me to come fill in. And it is a privilege and an honor to be here with my church family. This is a church that I grew up in. This is a church where I felt my call to ministry. Uh-huh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So it's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be here. Um, and, and what I want to talk about a little bit today is something that I believe God has been speaking uh, into my life over the past six months. And my hope is that it speaks to you this morning, uh, wherever you find yourself. But first, I want to begin with a story. In 1985, President Ronald Reagan was traveling to Geneva, Switzerland to meet with the then president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. And they were going to, to meet and talk about nuclear disarmament. What would these two uh, superpowers in our world, America and the Soviet Union, do with nuclear warheads? How would they use them? And so he was traveling with Nancy and a bunch of staffers to Geneva, Switzerland, and they decided that when they got there, they were going to stay in the home of a close friend, a chateau. And this family would be out of town, and they could have the whole chateau to themselves. Upon arriving at the chateau, Uh, President Reagan found a note left for him by the 10-year-old boy whose home they were staying in. The the, the 10-year-old boy's name was Hussein. And it said this, Dear Mr. President, would you please take care of my goldfish while you are staying at my house? Thank you, Hussein. Now, President Reagan was overjoyed at this request. He was excited uh, to take care of this young boy's goldfish. Unfortunately, he was a little bit too excited to take care of the goldfish because he fed the goldfish a little bit too much food. And on the morning of the very first meeting with President Gorbachev, President Ronald Reagan woke up to find the goldfish floating belly up in the fishbowl. Now remember, this meeting between President Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev was one of the most important meetings and negotiations in our country's history. In fact, the whole eyes of the world were watching because the lives of millions and millions of people hang in the balance. How would these two countries handle nuclear warheads? And so it was very tense. They had spent weeks up to this point strategizing, thinking how how do we approach these negotiations with with the Soviet Union. And and so this is a very important meeting. But on the morning of the meeting, before President Gorbachev was coming to the chateau to meet with Reagan, he finds this goldfish dead in the fishbowl. And Nancy Reagan uh, recalls the story where she wakes up and she sees her husband pacing back and forth in the room, distraught over the death of this goldfish. And the story goes that he called all of his staffers into the room and said, we have a crisis on our hands. And no one is leaving this this room until we come up with a solution. Now, obviously the solution was that they had to buy this young man another goldfish. Actually, they bought two of them. And President Reagan wrote a handwritten note apologizing to this young boy for unfortunately overfeeding his goldfish and causing this young goldfish's demise. And he apologized. But what I think is interesting about that story is that in the midst of this massive, stressful, important, historic negotiation that the whole world is paying attention to, President Reagan also found himself concerned with the intimate, personal, what perhaps seems as an insignificant detail as a dead goldfish that belonged to a 10-year-old boy. And to him, it was very, very important to deal with this. 
Now, I tell you that story not um, to compare President Ronald Reagan to Jesus, but I believe that Jesus does something very similar at the end of his life. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you turn to Luke chapter 24, and that's where we're going to launch from today. If you don't have your Bibles, the, the scripture will be up on the screen. But if we were to look at Jesus' life, and you have a, a, a basic understanding of, of Jesus' life and Christianity, and, and you look at the stories of the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus lives his life, he's crucified, he dies on a cross, and then he's buried in a tomb, and then three days later, he's resurrected. And if you understand the fundamentals of Christianity, you understand that this act, this, this moment, is the most important moment in human history, right? Because Jesus' death and resurrection provides a way for us, followers of Jesus, uh, to, to find salvation in God, right? It's the greatest achievement in human history, what Jesus does in his death and resurrection on the cross. And so you're thinking, wow, Jesus has achieved this, this macro-level achievement, right? The whole world is impacted by this. You'd think that Jesus would only now concern himself with the, the greater things of the whole world. And yet what we see following the resurrection is that Jesus spent time speaking into the intimate details in the lives of his followers, the intimate details of those who he called friends. What we see is following Jesus' resurrection, once again, the greatest achievement in human history, conquering sin and death and providing a way for salvation. We see that Jesus wants to speak in to the heartbreak and despair of a woman named Mary Magdalene. We see that Jesus wants to speak into the doubt that's being experienced by one of his early disciples named Thomas. We see that Jesus is insistent and makes it a point to speak into the shame that's being experienced by one of his closest friends and disciples, Peter, after Peter denies knowing Jesus three separate times. What we see is that Jesus is not just concerned about the big things, salvation for the whole world. He's also concerned about the small, personal, intimate details in each one of our lives. And I think that's, that's good news for us. And so today I want to look at a story that comes from this part of the gospel accounts after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And, and it's something that I, speaks in, I believe speaks into Jesus' desire to meet us on a personal and intimate level, to have relationship with us. Before we dive into scripture, let's just pray and invite God to speak to us today. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and gather in this place to turn to your word this morning. God, I pray that you'd speak to us, you'd open our eyes to see and our ears to hear your truth in a new way. God, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 24, uh, the story that we're going to look at today is often referred to uh, as the travelers on the road to Emmaus. And so just to set up this story for you, we have a picture, a famous picture of this, it's not picture, painting of this story. And there were these two individuals, one of which was named Cleopas, which we're going to find out about here shortly, who are leaving Jerusalem and they're traveling to a town called Emmaus, which is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. So this walk that they're on could take anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours. And they're leaving on the Sunday night that is the first Easter. And so they're, they're walking, and as they are walking, someone comes and walks along with them, a fellow traveler, if you will. But this person isn't any traveler. This person is Jesus. But they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. So uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 13, it says this. 
That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is a common occurrence. If you were to look at all the stories where Jesus comes and interacts with people uh, post-resurrection, this happens quite a bit. In fact, Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, and Jesus is speaking to, him, to her, and she turns and she thinks Jesus is the gardener. Like, she doesn't recognize him, and so she's, like, arguing with him and talking, and they're like, where, where have you put Jesus? And Jesus is standing right there, and she doesn't recognize him. Right? Peter, when he's fishing uh, in, a, in a boat with his friends, he hears a voice of someone yelling at them to throw their nets onto the other side of the boat, and he sees this person, and he's like, oh, I don't know what that guy's talking about, but they do it, and they pull up this great catch of fish, and then they look, and now they recognize Jesus. There's this thing that happens with a lot of the exchanges Jesus has where they don't recognize him at first, and this is the case in this story. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Right, Cleopas is, is dumbfounded that, that this person wouldn't know what had just happened in Jerusalem. One commentator compared it to uh, having someone walk around the cities of New York City on September 12, 2001 and saying, well, everyone looks so sad, did something happen? Right? That would be unfathomable. People would be like, how could you not know what happened yesterday, this tragic event in our city? So Cleopas is kind of like dumbfounded. You, are you only a visitor that you, you don't know what's happening here? And then Jesus responds, and I think this is hilarious. He says, what things? He plays dumb. He's kind of like, I don't, I don't know, what, what are you talking about? And so Cleopas and his companion begin to explain to Jesus what has happened. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some, of, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they're explaining to Jesus, listen, there's this, this teacher named, named Jesus of Nazareth, and we were following him, and he, we thought he was the one. We thought he was going to be the Messiah, he was crucified and he died. Like we, we watched them pull his body off the cross and bury it in this tomb. And so we're heartbroken. And, and even this, this, this morning, these, these women that were, that were followers with us, they went to the tomb and they said the tomb was empty and now his body's not even there. And they, they said that they've seen, they've seen visions of, of angels that said Jesus is alive, but, but some of our men went there and the tomb is empty and they didn't see Jesus. And so we don't know what to think. This is, this is what's happened. And Jesus responds to them by saying this, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, 
what I think is interesting is that Jesus hears their explanation as to what's been happening, and his first response is, you foolish people. Now, you might be asking, well, why is he telling them they're foolish? I mean, how would they know that these things were going to happen? Well, perhaps they would know because Jesus said over and over and over in his ministry, I have to die, and then three days later, I'll be resurrected. I'm going to have to die, and then I'm going to come back to life. Right? You'd think that if someone said that to you, who you had a close relationship with, you might file that one away in the mental filing cabinet as an important detail, right? Okay, they said they were going to die and come back to life. That seems important. Jesus said this four times alone in the book of Matthew, and yet his earliest followers did not realize this. They, didn't, they couldn't fathom what that actually meant. So when Jesus says, how foolish are you? He's, that's what he's speaking to. I, I told you this before. And then Jesus proceeds to give them the greatest theology lesson ever given. I mean, who better to, to talk about the study of God than God himself, right? And yet, after all of this, they still don't recognize Jesus, right? Still in the story. They still think that this traveler is just someone walking the streets. You think that maybe they would think something is fishy when this person who didn't know what was happening in Jerusalem all of a sudden becomes an expert on the topic, right? Explaining everything about theology. But they still don't recognize him. And the story continues. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, which I think is hilarious. Like, what excuse did Jesus come up with at that point? No, I got to keep going. I got to see a guy about a thing. <laughs> but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. Now, commentators would, would say that this invitation for um, Jesus to stay with Cleopas and his companion was an invitation to come eat with them, right? It's late in the evening. Come eat with us. Come stay and, and, and eat with us. And it's important to understand what this invitation to eat uh, with this stranger actually meant. In, in Jewish culture, at this time, the invitation to eat with someone was not just an invitation to, to eat and have a meal. It was an invitation for relationship and friendship. You see, eating around a table was something that was very intimate and personal and was done between people who had close relationship with one another. So when you had extended an invitation to someone to eat with you, you weren't just saying, hey, let's grab a bite because we both need to eat. In a sense, what you are doing is extending this invitation to be in relationship, to be friends, because the table was this intimate space, this personal space that you would share with those that you were closest with. And so when they're inviting Jesus to the table, they're inviting him to have relationship and friendship. This is why when Jesus, throughout the gospel accounts, would sit and eat with people that society saw as the riffraff, right? The sinners, the prostitutes, the gluttons, the thieves, this was so controversial because it's as if Jesus was saying to these people, I want to be friends with you. This is why it would have been so controversial when Jesus says to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was known to steal from people, Zacchaeus, I want to eat at your house today. This is Jesus saying, I want to have friendship with you. I want to enter a relationship that's personal and intimate. And so they extend this invitation to Jesus, and he decides to stay with them. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it 
and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, which I think is hilarious. Right? They're having, having a meal. Jesus breaks the bread. They look up, and they're like, it's Jesus. And he's like, he just disappears. Like, like and, and I always, like, in my mind, I'm like, he's holding the bread, and like, does he disappear? And then, like, the bread, like, falls on the table. Like, what would that look like? But he disappears. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It's as if they're saying, you know, when we were walking and he was explaining all of this to us, there was something inside my heart, this like, this pulling, this, this burning feeling of, okay, this guy knows more than the normal average bear. You know, he, 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 knows, he knows more about this than, than the normal person. This is weird. This, this is stirring something inside of me. But they still didn't recognize Jesus in that moment. It's not until they sit around the table, this personal and intimate interaction around a table with Jesus, that they fully see him for who he really is. I think there's something that we can pick up from this story. One thing that, that I've, I've recognized from this story is this, that theology and the study of scripture and having greater knowledge of God through reading books or through conversation or listening to sermons, all of that is important, very, very important. But apart from a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus, those things are quite insignificant and unimportant. Let me say that again. The understanding of theology and scripture and knowing all of these facts and important things about God, while they are important, if they are not done in personal relationship with Jesus, personal intimate relationship with Jesus, they're somewhat insignificant. Some of you might be thinking, well, that seems kind of harsh. I mean, I know lots about the Bible. Perhaps, perhaps some of you know someone who knows lots about the Bible, can quote scripture at a moment's notice. They can recite a whole book of the Bible, right? They can use large theological words like transubstantiation or dispensationalism in, in conversation at ease. But you've been in relationship with them and you watch how they live their life and a lot of how they live their life does not resemble Jesus, what I would argue is that that understanding of the Bible and all of those things can, can be somewhat insignificant if they're not done in relationship with being close and personal and intimate with Jesus. It has to begin with a personal and intimate relationship with Christ. Because it's in this moment that these travelers recognize Jesus for who he really is in a personal and intimate moment. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 15. There's another passage of Scripture I want to look at, and it's uh, during a famous scene that's often referred to as the Last Supper. And Jesus is sitting uh, with his disciples, and he, um, he, he starts talking, and we're going to go to chapter 15, verse 4. And there's a, there's a word that's used a lot in the Scripture, and I want to see if you can pick up what that word might be. It's used like a dozen times. It says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Can anybody tell me what the word was that was used over and over in the scripture? It's the word abide. Which I don't know about you, I don't use this a lot um, in my everyday language, the word abide. I mean, every once in a while when, when the Fae children are a little unruly, I, I'll say, unless you abide by the rules, all of them look at me like, oh, what, is that? what does that mean? Okay, unless you do what I ask you to do, right? We don't, I don't use the word abide a lot. But Jesus uses abide here <laughs> 10 times in these three verses, four verses. What does it mean? Well, one of the other translations has remain. If you remain in me. Is that what abide means? I think to understand uh, what abide means, we have a definition. It's from Webster's Dictionary. It says this, abide, to stay or live somewhere, or to remain or continue. To stay or live somewhere, to remain or continue. I think the best way perhaps to understand this, this word of abiding is to understand it through the metaphor that Jesus uses. He paints this picture of, of a vine and a branch, and a, a branch producing fruit. And he says this, I'll just say this again. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, right? So unless we are remaining connected with Jesus, unless we are tapping in to our relationship with Jesus, we cannot begin to produce fruit. We cannot begin to produce the things God wants to see manifested in our life. It must begin with being connected with Jesus, right? That definition of abide, to stay or to live somewhere, Abide in me, to stay or to live in close connection with Jesus. Because apart from this, the Bible tells us, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. I think if I asked um, a lot of you, what's the most important thing Jesus tells us to do? You probably would say, well, uh, the greatest commandment in the Bible, it says to love God and love other people with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? That's the most important thing. And I would agree, right? That's the greatest commandment, to love God and love other people. But I think Jesus gives us a precursor with this statement that those things, loving God and loving other people, must begin in a personal relationship, abiding relationship with Jesus. Because apart from that, 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 that abiding relationship, we cannot love other people properly. We can do nothing. That's what this scripture says. What do we mean by abiding? Okay, Michael, you've, you've convinced us we need to abide. What does that look like? How do I do this in my everyday life? 
Well, I don't know exactly what it might look like for you, but, but for me, um, it, it, it's looked like this. Over the past um, six months, I've been preparing to, to go on this journey to church plant. And part of me began feeling, you know, I wanna, I wanna have a deeper understanding of God and I wanna know more about God and I wanna grow closer to him so that I can be the best follower of Jesus and the best pastor that I can be. And so I thought, I need to start reading every book. I just started buying books on Amazon like crazy that are just sitting, uh, they're not actually sitting on a table, they're in my Kindle, but they're just filling up and not being read. But I'm trying, I gotta, I gotta have all these, I'm gonna read all these books, I'm gonna listen to sermons every day, I'm gonna meet with uh, other pastors who've been doing it for years and years just to learn how to be the best pastor and follower of Jesus. I'm gonna go to conferences, I'm gonna do online classes of s- some kind just to further my understanding of God. But what I realized was that while I was growing perhaps in knowledge of Jesus, I wasn't growing in relationship with my Lord and Savior. It's as if I was falling in love with a literary figure rather than a living and breathing Savior. Are you with me? It's like I was falling in love with someone I was reading a book about as opposed to falling in love with this being that is near me and with me and within me at all times. So I realized what I needed to do was before I start reading those books or meeting with other pastors or listening to sermons or going to conferences, all of those things are great. They're important. But I need to come out of a place where I am abiding with Jesus, personally connecting with him. And so for me, I thought, I need to find a quiet place. Now, when you're the father of four children who are eight and under, that does not exist in your house. But I found a place. I found a place in my house. Sometimes I'll go into my bedroom and I'll close the door, and that's quiet enough. Sometimes I need like three or four different le- layers of protection from the sound, uh, the sound pollution that is, is going on in the other room. And so I've gone into my closet, and I close the door, and I just sit in the floor in like the dark. And I connect with my Heavenly Father. Now, some of you are like, well, that's weird. What do you do in there? What do you do? And I, I tell you, at first, I, I, I used to pray. And, it was, and, it, and the prayer was very, you know, dear God, thanks for this day. And it was very formal. And then I began to ask myself, what? why am I praying in this formal way? Who is this for? Does it need to be formal for God? Because I think what God just wants me to do is to come and sit in his presence. And so now it has become this time where I go in there and I just, I just talk to God, I just say, God, the, God, this is how I'm feeling today. This is what I'm walking through. God, thank you for all of the things that you're doing in my life that are blessings. It's a time to acknowledge God for all the things I'm thankful for. But then it's also a time, and maybe this is even more important, for me just to, to give God all of the things that are stressing me out or worrying me or that I'm angry about or I'm concerned about. And I, I literally just say, God, this is how I'm feeling, and I lay it all out there truly lay everything out there, what I'm angry about, what's bothering me. It also has become this space where I can just sit and listen to God. Some of you are thinking, do you hear something? Well, I I don't often hear it. In fact, I've never heard an audible voice, but oftentimes while I'm just sitting there in what feels like deafening silence, which is such a break in the routine of our lives, right? to sit in silence. Sometimes I I feel like God's prompting me to do something. Sometimes it's like, hey, you should call that person. Someone pops in my mind. And you can say, well, that's just a coincidence. But sometimes I think it's God placing that person on my heart saying, you should call them this week. You should connect with them. 
Michael, you know that one thing that you're worried about? You should, you should do this. Sometimes I feel like God speaks to me by prompting my heart to do certain things. And, and the other part of this abiding is it's become a space where I've, I've begun to feel God reiterating to me how much he loves me. If you can just sit in this space and just begin to hear God saying, Michael, I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you for giving those things to me. I love you. For you, that might look very different. Maybe you don't have a closet that you can climb into, and so that would be weird when you're fighting through all the clothing and all that stuff. Maybe for you, it's you go on a hike. It's this place where you escape what you, what you have going on here to find quiet and solitude to connect in a personal and intimate way with Jesus. Because in doing so, I believe it is in these settings that we begin to see Jesus for who he really is. And so for you, maybe it's a hike, right? Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, is what scripture tells us. So for you, maybe it's the trail, and you like to walk uphill in the heat to see a view. I do not like to do this. Or maybe you like to go running, and no one's chasing you, but you like to go running, and, and, and it's in this time where you're running that you connect with God, and it's, it, it clears everything away, and so you're there with God, and you're able to just abide and connect with your Savior. Maybe for you, it's, it's retreating up north somewhere, or maybe for you, it's something different. If we are not abiding with Jesus, we can do nothing. I want to close today um, by giving you maybe one more picture of what this might look like. And I have my third youngest son here, and he's going to come up and help me. Hi, Cros. This is Crosby. Hi, buddy. <laughs> you doing okay? Yeah. You having a good day today? Um, something's coming up in a couple, uh, actually next weekend. What, do you know what's coming up next weekend? My birthday. Your birthday, yeah. Are you nervous right now? No. No, okay. Um, how old are you turning? Five. Five, yeah, because you're four now and you'll be five next birthday. And are we doing something special for your birthday? Mm -hmm. What are we having? Uh, a, wa a water slide. Water slide? Yeah, that's right, a water slide. And um, are you excited about that? Yes. Yes, it's going to be really fun. Um, and you played a, a sport this, this year? Mm -hmm. Was it fun? Mm -hmm. what, what was the sport that you played? T-ball. T-ball. And what was your favorite position that you played? First base. First base and second base. You're really good at second base, right? And you love to hit, too. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when um, Mommy went out of town and you were stuck with me? Do you remember that? <laughs> how, did you, how did you feel about that? Mm. You, were, you were a little upset, right? And you came and you talked to me and you said, I miss mommy, and that was really hard for you, right? Yeah, I was, I was really thankful that you came and you talked to me and told me that you were sad and upset and we were able to talk, right? Do you know that I love you? Mm -hmm. how, much, how much do I love you? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> I love you very, very much. Now, I'm going to stop for just a second. Does your relationship with Jesus look anything like this? Do you take time during your week, during your day, to sit like a child in the lap of their father, telling them about your day, right? What seems to be in insignificant 
details, playing t-ball, having a gigantic 25-foot water slide at your birthday party, which is awesome. <laughs> but also telling, telling God about the things that are bothering you. Do you find time to do this? Does your relationship with Jesus look like this? Or does it look like you just studying a literary figure that lived at a different time and place? Does it look like this? Is it personal and intimate? Because this, it's in this setting that we begin to recognize Jesus for who he really, really is. And apart from this, if you're not connecting apart from this, the Bible tells us we can do nothing. We cannot begin to manifest the fruit that he wants to see in our lives. Thank you, Crosby. Can we have a round of applause for Mr. Crosby? He was, he was thrilled about doing that, could you tell? We want to give you space to respond this morning. Maybe you've come in here and you um, have frustrations and you have stress you have confusion, or you have worry about whatever it is. We're going to give you space to respond today, but, but maybe more importantly, we want to give you space to respond during this week by finding time to abide with your Heavenly Father, to just sit in His presence and say, God, these are the things I'm struggling with, and I'm angry about this, I'm stressed about this, I'm worried about this, I'm confused about this. God, I want to give that to you. I would encourage you to, to go there first because it's out of this setting that perhaps God can start bearing the fruit in your life that he wants to see. Maybe you, you want to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus. I believe it begins by doing this, this practice of abiding, of simply being in his presence. And, and for, for you, it might be strange at first to take this time to be quiet, to go to a quiet space and Michael, what am I supposed to say? I think it just begins with you being honest. God, God I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how to do this, but help me learn to abide and remain connected with you. Reggie McNeil said this, the beauty of abiding is two hearts becoming one. The goal of abiding is becoming one of two hearts, yours and God's. When we abide, we begin to connect with our Heavenly Father and our two hearts become one. We want to give you space to respond. We have crosses here with, with uh, cardstock. You can write something and, and, and nail it to the cross. That's your way of saying, God, I'm giving this to you. I can't carry this anymore. Or maybe you want to light a candle. Light in the Bible often refers to God's presence. And so by lighting a candle, you say, God, I want you to flood me with your presence in this aspect. But we want to give you space to respond. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to get to know you not by just reading in a book, not by listening to a, a teacher talk about you, but that we have access to you anytime we want it. God, that you have made your spirit available to us. God, I pray that this week we would make space, we would remove distractions, we would quiet our lives so that we can learn to abide in you. God, as, as abiding is defined, that we would live somewhere, that we would live with your presence, in your presence, connected 
in an intimate and personal way to your presence because it is in this setting that we can truly recognize you for who you are. God, we love you. We thank you for that gift, the gift of abiding that we have the privilege to participate in. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.